Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DiCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own journey, starting with my struggles with anxiety years ago, that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated with the process of how we become who we are. We will hear from people telling their stories of becoming, of unbecoming, and overcoming, as well as from experts helping us learn about our own process in the world. We are not designed to stay the same. Our stories are still being written. We are all still becoming. so excited to have yoga teacher and pelvic health specialist Patty Schmidt on the Still Becoming podcast. When Patty and I talked about doing this interview many, many months ago, we had no idea that we would be in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think the timing of Patty's voice coming to us on this podcast is perfect. You will hear Patty give us insider information and wisdom from her years of practice as a yoga teacher and a pelvic health specialist. Patty tells us that one of the promises of yoga is to still the mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine many things that we need more than that right now as we are confronted with anxiety and grief and fear all during this pandemic. During this episode, Patty and I also talk about the way our breath reveals our mind state and the ways that we use our breath to understand ourselves and to be compassionate with ourselves. We talk about how the fluctuations of our breath might bring us toward a greater sense of peace. And here's what I'm so excited to share with you that Patty has on her website offered a short guided meditation on breath, which you can use after you listen to this interview. In addition to that, Patty and I talk about a mindfulness practice called naming, and we um, will have a link to that too. Patty's creating a video for us to go through that meditation practice as well. Our heart in this was not only for you to learn about the wisdom that Patty shares, but also for you to be able to access it as you're at home quarantining in a way that is free, that is accessible, and that all of us can do. At the end of this interview, Patty shares a story of grace in her life that helped her become who she is today. And that grace has impacted the way that she practices, the way that she teaches. And I will tell you, as someone who has the honor of knowing Patty and got to have this conversation with her, that grace just comes all the way through in all of her wisdom. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, and I'm so grateful that you are doing this. And we've been talking about it for a while, and so I'm so glad that um, we have gotten a chance to do it. And we're definitely in a different time than when we scheduled to do this um, recording, and so we'll get to that. But I just wanted to start with, um, if you would tell us just a little bit about who you are and how you got into teaching yoga um, and what drew you to the practice of yoga in the first place. Yes. Well, um, I also want to just say I'm so happy to be here. It is a different time, and I know we'll come to it. I want to just, I guess, start back at the beginning. I started practicing yoga in earnest when I got to graduate school. I think a lot, like a lot of people, I picked up the class or two there before I started practicing in earnest. But in terms of like a daily practice, I was in graduate school. So that was over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And yoga looked much different. It wasn't driven by the visual culture of social media or influencers. And it was far more local. 
there weren't large chain studios. So it was like a very different landscape. Wow. Yeah. I would have never thought. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed a lot in the West, in America. And I started practicing yoga in a Bikram studio, which is a heated practice for those of you who don't know. And it was very dogmatic at the time. It too has changed in the last 20 Mm -hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And then I moved into a different kind of set practice a couple of years after that. It's called Ashtanga Yoga. And you build your own heat in Ashtanga Yoga, but it's still an incredibly challenging and physical practice. And so what these two yoga practices share still, even though they've changed too, is that in each class you take the same sequence or nearly every time, at least when you're a beginner. Hmm. Does that mean the same the the same sequence is like you're going to do the same movements each class? Exactly. So it's not the poses that change; it's you who change. Whoa, that's very deep, Patty. Well, I think that's what drew me first into the daily practice. It was this promise of self transformation. But, Mon, I have to be totally honest. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I would be totally lying if I said it was a healthy relationship. Sure, sure. <laughs> Those Tell first us. couple of years. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, I was really disciplining my body Mm -hmm. and I was exhausting myself in my practice as well as by depleting and depriving practices throughout my life. Okay. And I was doing it to numb feelings I didn't want to feel, family of origin stuff and low, you know, this stuff I didn't want to deal with. Mm. And so I like to kind of personify yoga as this really wise partner who was kind of willing to be complicit or obliging to these practices for only so long in order to kind of get me in the door. And then the richness of the practice, its wisdom, its true power for personal transformation and for, I guess, the cultivation of compassion and inner resting, then it came into my view. Yoga refused to participate or to be complicit any longer in my unhealthy patterns. And so diving deeper into yoga was like a fundamental part of getting well for me too. That's amazing, Patty. I didn't know that. And it's such a powerful um, testament to to the practice that even bringing unhealth into it, um, that couldn't be sustained. Yeah. And actually, I don't think that that's a particularly rare story. Hmm. Okay. I suspect that's pretty common. Well, you know, and what do you think it is about yoga or this particular kind of yoga that that does that? You know, what what is it that you're confronting um, as you're practicing even the same movements or as you said, the same sequence um, each time that that does that? I don't know. Um, I guess I come back, I keep coming back to the promise of yoga and that the more you practice it, the more that promise becomes clear, which is that yoga will still the turning of your mind. And that when that happens, as rare as it is for we human beings, the student can rest in her true self. And the promise is that that true self is something that's untouched by anything else, by anything external. It resides within you and you can always return to it. And that's what, that's what keeps me coming back. I mean, I have chills. I, I did not know, and I would imagine a lot of people listening, unless they really practice, d- don't know the promise of yoga, um, that it would, it'll still, the turning of the mind, and, and then allowing the student to rest in her true self. And that's written. And of course, it's, it's, with a, it's in Sanskrit, and it's with a male seeker. The word is seeker in Sanskrit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sadaka. But that's that's the beginning of our teaching. And now begins the teaching of yoga. Yoga stills the turning of the mind. And then the seeker resides in his true self. Wow. And and that takes me to my next question, which was, um, you know, we all from afar, and, and I would count myself as a um, believer in yoga from afar. I am I am not a regular practicer. I don't know much. Um, but we know, most of us, that this is healthy. We've all can agree on that, or we think that's true, but we don't even know why. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think that you've already started to answer that question is in this beautiful promise of yoga to still the turning of the mind. Um, but what else do you think regular practice or even understanding um, does for people? Yeah, I, I think that is such a valuable question because um, 
well, for a number of reasons. But I think how I'd want to respond to that is that yoga is really slow but powerful medicine. So just in its speed, it's helpful as a counter to um, our kind of quick fix culture. Um, I think it gives us an opportunity to take a slower kind of medicine. But then I think there's a couple of other things that um, I think everyone who comes to yoga or who is thinking about encountering it should know, which is that it meets you right where you are. So it's existed as a as ancient wisdom, as ancient teaching, it's existed long before you, and it will exist long after you. And for me, there is such comfort there because as you begin to participate in its practices, you are simply catching on to those threads to ride them for a little while, and you're participating in all that ancient wisdom. So we come to that practice just as we are, and we will get what we're supposed to get. And I think for a lot of people, I mean, Again, I don't think this is a rare story. I think sometimes that first experience could be frustration mm-hmm. or unease. Mm-hmm. And so then that medicine is not as clear. And the fact that it's slow medicine is, is a harder thing to take. But, um, you know, we cat, then we catch on to the thread again. And maybe we find a new teacher or we come to a new place in our own lives and we get something else. And at its best, yoga keeps greeting us right where we are. And the lesson, the medicine there is that we learn to turn toward ourselves in a way that's really powerful and one that most of us usually need over and over again, a lesson in just turning toward where we are at that moment. And um, I think that's something that we really underestimate is how often we have to learn the same lesson over and over again. Yes. I mean, and, and it sounds like I, I'm, this is built in to practicing, in. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> practicing yoga, you know, but, but our culture is so quick fix or so, well, oh, you know, I read this one thing, I've got this insight, like go. Um, You're fixed. That, exactly, exactly. And if it was that easy, we would all be fixed, but none of us are. Right. Well, and just related to your point about that is the the second thing that's like a perfect segue. The second thing that I think everyone who comes to yoga in terms of trying to understand why is it healthy, mm-hmm. that everyone should know is that we're encouraged to get really intimate with our breath in almost all yogic practices. And again, this may not be a particularly comfortable place to start. So for some, we're out of breath or it's restricted or like it's not even something we can perceive. And why is the teacher asking me to attend to this? It's really annoying. Be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then over time and with practice, and again, we get back to the slow medicine and the practice part, we start to sit with our breath a little more often. And ultimately the breath becomes our guide, not just in our practice, but in our daily life. It's our yoga off the mat. Can you say a little bit more about our breath being the yoga off the mat? So it's, it's, it's what I'm hearing. Tell me if I'm getting this right. What you um, practice in the the yoga classes and being really in tune with your breath, that then you carry that with you out into the world. And one way to tap back into that is with your breath. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Well, I guess I would think that this turning toward I'm about to take us really deep here, Mon. Here we go. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. So (laughs) this turning toward ourselves, which we practice every time we meet ourselves on our mat and every time we come to our breath and observe it for just what it is, this turning toward with compassion is really a practice of ending separation. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so when we take our practice off the mat and out into the world with others, we are, we're ultimately trying to come that we don't see ourselves as separate from someone else anymore. I I don't think I've had chills this many times in an interview ever. Um, I have chills again. That is, um, that is actually one of the most beautiful things. I'm a little verklempt at that, that, you know, turning towards ourselves with compassion, um, we're ending separation with ourselves. And then we take that out into the world. Ideally. I mean, that's the, that's the, and I've said this, I think I've shared this with you before, which is that yoga builds in this amazing get out of jail card for our humanity, which is that, well, you're told, right? Yoga will still the turning of the mind. Yeah. And then when it does that, you get to rest in your true self, which is this very compassionate, loving place. And then the very next lesson we get is that 
at other times is the phrase they use in Sanskrit, which I just feel like the teacher is rolling his or her eyes at that moment. At other times. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The rest of your day. The rest Uh of your day, Uh like the other 24 hours and 45 minutes. Right. (laughs) is, (laughs) Is spent identifying with the turning of the mind and following the stories we tell ourselves and all the fluctuations. And those stories and the fluctuations, they get written on our breath. Wow. They're they're observable in our breath. Say if I am anxious, um, what might my breath be like in the rest of my day? What how, you know, if it's written on in our breath, what what might you know, what might you see if someone is breathing a certain way in in, in, in their breath? So I would say very concrete examples for many people, like not everyone, of course, but a very concrete example would be that as you're more identifying with the turning of the mind, yes, the stories, the fluctuations, as you more identify with that, your breath will become shorter, more shallow. Your inhalation will be more in the chest. And um, the breath cycle may be very uneven. There may be some of the words I use in meditation when I'm leading it is to just notice the hitches and hiccups of the breath. People sometimes feel it in their abdomen. They sometimes feel it in their diaphragm. And then, of course, the most, the most apparent is that we're not attending to the breath at all, that we're no longer with it at all, that it's really impossible to sit with it. I mean, have you ever been so agitated where you literally can't sit with your breath? Definitely. Yeah. I definitely have. It's a really human condition. Yeah. So what would it, if someone's been practicing yoga and is learning to attend to their breath and, and is learning or starting to experience the stilling of the turning of the mind, what might their breath feel like? What might, you know, what, what changes might practicing this um, turning toward over and over again do for your breath? Well, I think, again, this is a generalization, but I think people might experience their breath as something smoother. Because, and and that's like everything we're talking about, there's a physiological change, you know, so your, the actual diaphragmatic movement might, might change, but they might experience it as a breath that's got fewer of those hitches and hiccups, that it's smoother. They might experience it as more abdominal. They might experience it as more back bodied, actually, that they feel it in, and that would be something that, again, I would guide in meditation to to come toward that because we know that that's calming to the nervous system. Um, and they might experience it as um, sometimes the word that we use is four cornered so that the, the natural cycle of the breath where we have the inhalation and a pause there and the exhalation and a pause there, that that feels like a very natural rhythm, that there's a rhythm to the breath. Those are, those are examples of something we might, one, try to foster or two, feel as we come to attend to our breath. It all sounds so lovely. You know, I, I, when I hear about this, I think, gosh, like, you know, all, all, all good things that you might hear in different religions or in different mental health practices or in different, you know, trauma healing seems to be, you know, threaded through all of this. Um, it's really astounding. Now, what does your breath do to your nervous system? And, and maybe that's not the right way to ask it, but how does your breath impact your nervous system or, or, or vice versa? You know, if you are working on your breath and yoga, um, and then we'll move on after that, but I'm just curious, um, you know, how one can understand that that can be calming to your whole system. I guess the good thing about rest and digest or why, why, why we want to get there is that we no longer have to react. And what is rest and digest for, you know, for those that don't know what you're referring to, what is that state that we're trying to get to? Okay. So we have a nervous system that goes between this very reactive portion Mm -hmm. where you know, you'll have heard, and I'm sure all of your listeners will know this fight or flight, right? Yes. And, and I think a lot of good thinkers have added freeze mm-hmm. into that as well. So fight, flight, or freeze, but it's a reactive kind of place where, um, 
we have to make a decision usually towards self-preservation. And so we would describe this, this hanging out in this part of our nervous system as a pretty stressed place, a place where we're constantly having to we're being asked to react, to make quick decisions. And we know that the rest of the portions of our body, like our digestive system, sleep, um, reproduction, you know, the hormone production in our body uh, related to reproduction and sexual health, these all either go into like hibernation or get dramatically altered if we hang out in that part of our nervous system for any length of time. So then we have this other part of our nervous system where those nourishing aspects of our life, like eating and hunger and sleep and pleasure, those can all happen, but we can only participate in those fully when, and have like good sleep cycles and reproductive health and digestive cycles. We can only rest in that place when we are no longer in that stressed nervous system. We call this entering our parasympathetic nervous response. Okay. Okay. And that's what we mean by rest and digest. This is a place where we can take nourishment because we are no longer being asked to react quickly and live in stress right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can <laughs> Immediately. <feel> now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is how, that is how, you know, so much of life is. I mean, it is at a breakneck speed, even, you know, even silly things like, um, um, turning things in for teacher appreciation week or, you know, everything is so fast. Um, and so what I'm hearing is that, part of, you know, the breath work or the practice of yoga can take you from this reactive fight, flight, or freeze state and help you learn to access and move into the rest and digest place where you're not in that stressed reactive state. Is that right? It is. And I think I'd just say two other things about this, which is that, and I just want to make sure I attend to what you're saying properly, which is just that, yes, by slowing the breath, we have this we have science that shows along with ancient yoga wisdom that we will flip into our parasympathetic nervous system if we slow down our breath enough. They Somewhere around six breaths a minute gives us that flip. Okay. And so I know you and I talked about maybe we would offer some resources to listeners and we could do a kind of breath work to get us to that place. Mm-hmm. I want to just say, as I mentioned that six breaths a minute, that sometimes coming to that threshold can be anxiety producing for those who are not used to slowing down their breath that much. So you might not want to do that by yourself at home if you are living with anxiety. That That's the kind of thing you might want to take guidance from a yoga teacher about. Okay. That's good to know. Or a meditation teacher. They should be able to help you with breath work too. But so we have that science, but then there's this other yoga part, which is that if we can slow our breath enough to just give ourselves permission not to react for a moment, to just see, it gets us, and again, I, I don't want to go take us right back into the deep waters, but I'm going to do it. And then oh, you can I'm ready. back out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It gives us the opportunity to come back to, I think therapists would, would ha- probably put this lesson in a different way. So you might want to change how I'm saying it, but it gives us the opportunity to come back to that true self that we reside in that's untouched by anything else. Mm. So I really like your example of um, turning in teacher presence because when we can compassionately non-react for a moment and see that we've attached our self-worth to whether that happens, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can be like, whoa, I see I did that. And I can remember that I am worthy of love anyway. What I'm hearing with this specifically with breathwork and yoga also is that there is there is so much returning to your true self, to returning to, you know, your own self-worth, to what is true in a in a restful, aligned, connected way. Is that Yeah. And and I really want to plug something I'm totally unaffiliated with. Yeah. But which made a huge like I'm truly unaffiliated with. Yeah. <laughs> it made a huge uh, difference in my life, and and I recommend it to students all the time. Which is the I rest, which is a lowercase I and a capital R I rest 
Institute's meditations about this very thing. Okay. Um, they have a wonderful program. It's extremely accessible. It was built for trauma survivors, but they really are harnessing the power of this yoga message, which is that there's this true place inside of ourselves. And like you said, it, it aligns with any varying religious belief. Right. If that's your worldview, you know, it aligns with lots of worldviews to practice resting in this place inside of yourself. It's really a wonderful resource. I'll make sure to get the the link from you and put it in the show notes so that people can find it too. Um, but that's so good to know. I'm going to check that out myself today. It's so wonderful. Well, I can I can understand now why from afar it's like it's almost magnetic that we have um, as in general people think of yoga as a healthy good thing. I mean, it's just the the amount of wisdom and depth and potential for healing and changing the way that you engage with the world feels pretty astounding to me. You know, and I, I've I've seen that in people's lives. I've seen people accelerate their own changes or healing when they practice yoga. Um, I'm wondering if we can pivot and talk about um, how our bodies hold pain and hold stress. You know, no matter what your role is um, in life, or no matter what your job is, or if you're a full time parent. Um, our bodies hold stress, but I don't think we really understand that. Um, can you explain, you know, how our bodies hold stress or, or any examples that you've seen of that? And then I want us to talk a little bit about what's happening currently with the coronavirus. Yeah, of course. Okay. So, I mean, obviously this is a huge question about how people it hold is. stress in their bodies. <laughs> so maybe, maybe it's an unfair one, but. No, it it's okay. Yeah. But I'd love to un- just break it up a little bit. So I would like to, for just a moment, come back to pain okay, and talk just about stress for a minute and make a little differentiation between those two. Oh, great. Because I think the pain question is one that's worth considering a little separately from stress. So in terms of stress, again, you know, I don't want to generalize too much, but I wanted to give an example. And I, I think I've mentioned this in other places and I, I, I have a blog post about it and it's something I've been speaking about. So this is a daily holding of stress, and it kind of segues really nicely into your question about coronavirus and um, what we're, what many of us are experiencing now. And so I've called this daily holding of stress sitting with tension. And if someone else has called it that first, that's fine. I'm just not aware of it, so I don't have anyone to cite. So sometime last year, I realized that over half, which is an astounding percentage to me, over half of my private practice students at that time were caregivers. And specifically, they were clinicians. So therapists, doctors, uh, nurses, dentists. And then I also had some teachers of, of small children who, who were seated in chairs more. So I'd also put them into this category. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these clients had a couple of things in common that I'd draw attention to in this example. So they had long periods um, of sitting during the day. They were not fully in control of when they could move their bodies or how during their day. Interesting. They were often exposed to traumatic or highly stressful information and events. So I think the teachers in my practice at the time, when I kind of started making this mental list, they taught in more deprived areas where they might be concerned whether a child had had breakfast or something like that. And then they were not necessarily in control. And I don't, this is not like a potty joke. This, I really mean this seriously. They were not necessarily in control of when they could void their, their uh, bladder or their bowels, usually because they were caring for others. That makes, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's real. You know, it's it makes real. perfect sense. It's, mm-hmm. it's real. And then also this last thing I noticed is that none of them really wanted to change what they did in their lives. Isn't that something? Yeah. I know. They felt called to serve. But they also realized that what they were doing on a daily basis was causing problems. And so these conditions together were allowing a settling in of stress into the body. And I think that gets to your question about stress in the body. I think it starts to settle in. It starts to make a home. I've never heard it described that way. Um, And it just makes so much sense that it settles in the stress and it makes a home in your body. And I think in some ways it's not an... um, I don't know that I've ever actually articulated it in that way either, but because we hear about it resting in our tissues, right? But I think that 
maybe that's kind of a useful analogy because we can, we all kind of know what it feels like to have house guests where it feels comfortable for a little bit and then it starts to feel really uncomfortable. Yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) We all know that feeling. And it's not that you didn't want them to come. (laughs) I don't know how far I can push the metaphor, but (laughs) you know, I think of the, the stress as taking up residence. And so this sitting with stress or sitting with tension, as I've called it, it produces a whole host of physical considerations. And this is where we really can look very usefully at stress as different from pain. So stress produces like a whole host of physical considerations that might take us into the pain category, like back pain. Mm -hmm. But it also takes us into things like pelvic floor dysfunction that might not express itself as pain. It takes us into things like digestive issues that might not express themselves as pain. And so then we can get into a pattern of chasing symptoms, which that's a whole other podcast. But (laughs) But then it also raises additional issues which is is this sitting with stress Mm -hmm. that yoga can also address, which is issues around being out of control, issues around shutting down messages like I need to pee really badly. We shut that message down. What happens when we shut down messages from our own body? And then issues around conflict in one's own life too. Like I choose this, but it's hurting me. How can I bring wisdom and discernment, self-study, surrender to this aspect of my life? So that's something that I think you know, in terms of like stress, that's how stress is held and manifest. But that's also how yoga can help us come come to it. We get the yoga medicine that says 20 minutes for lower back pain, and that's valuable. But then we also get the yoga teaching that says, I need to commit to self-study. And and that is one of yoga's first teachings is committing to self-study and surrender. What what does that mean? What does self-study mean? Oh, is that too much? Is that too deep? Yeah. <laughs> we we need I think we need three or four episodes. If you if for the layman, what is what does self-study mean? Like so I'm, what I'm hearing is that we you know part of what when stress settles into our body, you know, part of that is we become we habitually learn to deny messages from our body, to not listen to them. Um yes, and so so beautifully, Monica. What, oh, thanks. What is self-study then? What, one of the things that has happened in the last, right when we started the podcast, I said yoga's changed a lot in the last 20 years. And one of the things that's happened is that with the privileging of our visual culture, we have started to really misperceive that the yoga is in the postures hmm. because that's what we see all day yeah. long on Instagram and Facebook and out in the park is people doing crazy stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or even just sitting in lotus pose. I mean, that's not available for most people's hips. So, right. <laughs> you know, right. I'm just sitting here not doing anything, but I'm doing something that most people can't do. Right, right. Absolutely. So we have this kind of privileging of the visual. And what we forget is that before the yoga postures and the physical practice is um, presented to the yoga student, we are presented with guidelines for how to live with ourself niyamas is the sanskrit and guidelines for how to live with others and that's the yamas so the yamas and niyamas and they come before the postures are presented to us before the physical practice is discussed and so self-study is one of those that's asked of us so we a practice of um surrender which I mentioned, and, and it's very clear. It's surrender to God. It's not clear about what God, but a higher power. And self-study, svadhyaya, are, are presented right at the beginning of the yoga practice that you need to learn this before you learn your sun salutation. And you need to commit to it. You need to learn the correct posture before you are doing the movements we see on Instagram. Yeah, you need to learn. They really mean an internal gaze. Right, right. That's what, yeah, and the correct, I don't know if it's emotional. Um, I I don't think that's the right word. That feels very limiting, but the correct orientation. Oh, I like that word. Yeah, it's an inward gaze. It's an inward orientation. And and I think the other good thing about that is, you know, that, that paired with that is something that some translators translate as burning zeal or dedication which is, is saying that I, rec- I see that this work will be hard. Turn toward it. Orient yourself inward anyway. Do it anyway. I mean, you know, just again, again, with the, with the depth and the, I mean, just 
life anchoring, altering statements, you know, that we, we, we are not encouraged generally to turn towards things that are hard. And maybe that's, maybe you're in it so often, right? That's just, I don't, I don't see that at all in our general stance. Um, so I think that that is so powerful. Well, can I just tell you a story? I really learned that from my teacher and this one morning. So we, I lived in California for about, I grew up there, but then I lived away for 20 years and I came back. And, and when I was back, I lived in Northern California where the mornings are very cold. And, um, we, I went to study with my teacher and there was a dedicated group of it. Her name is Nubia Tejera and she's Brazilian, has a thick accent and often will just come out with a lot of Portuguese in the middle of class. And <laughs> you're just kind of like, okay, I'm doing it. Yeah. Stop shouting at me. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. And we showed up to the studio in this mountainous area of California and it's freezing and the studio was locked. And I think everyone expected her to just dismiss us. And rather than that, she put us into this tiny cold patio where it was too cold to lie down on the floor because it was freezing. It was like an ice block underneath your feet. And she, we, we took postures that were, it's not like boot camp. We took postures, yoga postures for that taxed our legs heavily. And she kept saying, I know that you feel this and that's okay. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's okay that you feel this. It's okay that your legs are tired. Yeah. Well, I think we so often associate pain with um, going the wrong way, you know, or, or, or difficulty with doing the wrong thing um, and ease with confirmation that we're in the right spot and it's going well, you know? And so, um, but that obviously limits us in our experiences. Um, yeah. Or we'll go so far, but not... Like that's enough. Yeah. Wow. That is an amazing story. I know. Um, I like that story. It, it does <laughs> yeah. take me back to some really burning quadriceps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, tell me, you know, we're right now when we're recording, um, we are in the middle of basically a national lockdown. Um, and because of COVID-19 and it is, it's, um, it's heartbreaking. It is, People are dying. Um, people are, you know, running towards um, to help as, you know, medical professionals. The rest of us are told to stay home. Um, it is it is scary. Um, so people are feeling a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, uh, and a lot of grief. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, with you and, and your experience working with people in different states, obviously this has never happened before. Um, but when, when you think about anxiety and fear and even grief, um, where, where do people hold that in their body? Or is that even the right question? You know, what does that look like for people? If, if, we, if someone listening were to be able to gain some wisdom from your understanding, um, where might they be holding these things that are very understandable to be feeling? Where might they be holding anxiety and fear? And if that's the wrong question, tell me, you too, right? Because I don't know if that's even, I don't even know if that's the right language for it. No, I mean, I think it's a good question. I don't know another way to frame that question. Like, how are people experiencing physically what's going on? Yeah. And, and gosh, I have so much to say about this. But um, I think that the first thing I'd say is that, it, and I know you know this as a therapist, is that anxiety and fear look different in each of our bodies. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. And so well, a 10-minute practice that one person might take for anxiety would look really different to a 10-minute practice that person, you know, if that's person A, then person B might take a very different looking 10-minute practice. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we need to meet that anxiety with, with movement in order to be able to bring ourselves out of that fight or flight reactive state. And sometimes we need to meet it with stillness. And, and that's something that, you know, you need a more tailored yogic response to know. And, and the more you practice, the more you'll know how to meet yourself there. But a teacher helping you with that is a, is a good idea at the beginning. But when I think about that also, I guess I would say that what is common to that response would be imbalance. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Imbalance 
tends to our yoga wisdom is that imbalance is going to present itself in our bodies, in our behaviors. This is a place that we can begin to observe imbalances. Mm -hmm. Some people will be prone towards anger and judgment outbursts. And yoga has this sister science called Ayurveda. Some of your listeners will be familiar with that. And I'll just preface everything I'm about to say by saying I'm not an Ayurveda. It's part of my yoga therapy training, but I'm not an Ayurvedic doctor. But um, I know enough to say what I'm about to say, which is that some people will be, their imbalance will manifest itself as anger, rage, judgment. And this can be inner rage and judgment too. It doesn't have to be towards others. It can be towards yourself. Um, Others will have that imbalance manifest itself as like self-doubt, distraction, flightiness, and inability to get things done. Like just, they're just all over the map running around 20 projects on the go. Nothing's getting done. Distraction. And then a third category of people, according to Ayurveda, it will, that imbalance will manifest itself as lethargy and inertia. Mm, Okay. And so I'm hoping that your listeners right now or our listeners are thinking, hmm, I see that in myself. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Oh, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, whether they're serving others or doing their service by staying at home right now in this COVID-19 changing time, it, you know, will have already observed those imbalances in themselves. The other thing I'd say about how imbalance might be perceived, anxiety and fear, but let's call it imbalance, would be in your um, diet and bowel movement choices. Hmm. And again, I'm not, this is not like potty joke. So with um, people who are prone to anger and judgment, they may see that they've got slightly more overactive bowel movements right now, that maybe even diarrhea, really quite runny stool, loose stool. People who are prone to distraction and flightiness and self-doubt, they may find that they're either constipated or that they're having swings between constipation and a looser stool. Could even be little pellets, that constipation kind of rabbit pellet poop. And then people who are kind of prone towards lethargy and inertia may notice that they're making dietary choices that are are more about overeating. Okay. Yeah. And so if we can observe those imbalances, and again, it's that compassionate observation and witnessing, then can we begin to Harness our resources, our friends, our therapists, our yoga teachers, the resources that we have to find balance. And that's how maybe we would come out of anxiety and fear. So not one set yoga practice, but our yoga, the appropriate yoga for us. It all seems so um, tailored you know, to the individual, even the way that the individual is experiencing or showing the imbalance in their lives and then the the healing or the working through of that is very personalized and tailored for each person which just makes sense that everyone is so different yes but yes and yes yes tell yes, me yes and mm-hmm. ayurveda also gives us this really helpful thing which took me a long time to learn because I'm, I'm one of those people that's more prone towards anger and judgment. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, these are very fiery, fiery people. Yeah. And for those of you who like Enneagram or Zodiac, the Ayurveda is a little bit different from that, but it might help you to think of it as just another lens of looking at people. That's helpful. Yeah. One of the things that I did learn is that this, this Vata category, this, this air, this mobility, dry, mobile, air-like quality pushes everything else. And that is something that for everyone experiencing this outbreak, this pandemic, they are in overdrive with Vata, this air. Because even if you are no longer running, some people will still be running around and trying to catch different modes of transportation or their their routine has changed so much that everything feels mobile and uncertain and like a moving target. And especially for those care providers out there, they are in a constant state of flux and mobility. And, you know, probably eating food whose only quality is like dry and prepackaged and But even for people who are not doing that, being constantly on a screen 
being pulled, like let's say you're a stay-at-home mom right now who's also trying to work part-time and care for children and teleschool, and let's say maybe your kids are in more than one school, and let's say maybe you're also attending to animals and a parent or multiple other, you know, so suddenly you are pulled in a hundred different directions, often with a lot of screen interaction and multitasking. That is also a mobile Vata quality that needs to be calmed because it will push every other, every other imbalance. It will push it harder. And I think each of us, hopefully each of you listening is, is hearing, oh my gosh, yes, I feel so depleted and exhausted after that level of interaction and movement and attention being pulled in all these different directions. And so something each of us can do is add more grounding qualities to our day. So coming away from the screen, focusing on just one thing at a time, if possible and when possible, eating warm cooked food. And I realized that that will feel really counterintuitive to people. Mm Mm -hmm. that they might be inclined towards salads if they're in this vata-driven place, but actually the warm cooked would be better. It sounds more nurturing. Yeah, It's Mm -hmm. more nurturing. And also maybe adding, if you don't take oil in your bath, if you added oil to your skin. So grounding things. And And then again, we can put resources in the show notes for people to explore this more fully, resources for people to to talk to other to others who have more knowledge than I do. But that's something that everyone can do. Can you define again the the vata thing that you are not things? Is it a state? Is it we call it a dosha. Okay. So it's like a state. It's a it's the idea that you're born that way. You come that way. Okay. Okay. And then you have you have like your your dosha that you're kind of born with, your con or a constitution. It a constitution. That's how it's often uh, a constitution. Okay, that that I got it. And and so right now with all this anxiety and fear, it sounds frantic to me. I mean, whether it's frantic frantic distraction or um, frantic because your your life literally is frantic right now, um, trying to catch up with what's happening and the so many people's jobs are at stake and all all the things. So okay. That makes sense. And, you know, we know that that vata imbalance, that so vata is the quality of air, mobility, dryness. Ayurveda tends to refer to things with qualities. So those are those qualities. They, they will, an imbalance there will push imbalances elsewhere too. So like I might be prone to anger and judgment and I might be prone to losing my temper. It won't help me to drink a fourth cup of coffee that's going to make that worse, but it also won't help me to be running around doing 400 things. Got it. Got it. So I can at least calm those 400 things as best I can. That's something everyone can do. And then it really wouldn't help me to go practice handstands for 10 minutes. That won't help. Right. That would make that fire hotter. Right. 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 So my 10 minute anxiety calming yoga sequence would be to lie down on the floor. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, which would be would be the opposite of your nature. So if if people are listening, if they are finding themselves imbalanced, um, first just gently understanding the different ways that people are imbalanced, right? But then that moving towards that balance might be picking something that is different than what you're already moving in. Is right, that right? Well, and that's an Ayurvedic teaching: is that like attracts like, and so. For example, I'm taught that as a fiery person, I like sour, salty, and spicy foods. Mm -hmm. So taking them in excess is going to make my anger and my judgment worse. And I recognize that this sounds like hocus pocus in lots of ways. Like I recognize that this is not how many of us were raised to, to understand this. But there are large swaths of the world where Ayurvedic doctors are the main care practitioners and work in tandem with what we might recognize as Western medicine. So there is a lot of valuable teaching here, and a lot of it has come into Western medicine practices anyway. Okay. Well, let me pivot um, 
one of the things when, when we had discussed doing this interview, I wanted to hear you talk about the word embody and embodiment. Um, cause that is something that's a word and, and maybe, maybe listeners aren't hearing that all the time. I hear that a lot. And I just wondered if you could help us, and this is also a big question, but what, what does it mean? Um, what does embodiment mean and why is this an important topic? When I think about embodiment, what I really think about is a slowing down. So I guess where I'd like to start, and I don't know in what context you've heard it exactly, but I can make an educated guess that it's about getting people to live a little bit more inside themselves. Um, but I guess I'd like to start with a quote from T.S. Little. And I know that not all of your listeners will know who he is, but he's one of our living yoga masters here in the United States. He's a, he's a more senior figure in the yoga community in the U.S., And he gave a podcast interview last year that um, he was talking about living in our bodies, embodiment, and trauma. And he said, habit lives at speed. Hmm. And I'll just say that again. He said, habit lives at speed. So he was calling for a slowing down of movement of daily life so that we could come out of habit and into embodiment. So I think embodiment at its most basic, and please feel free to you know, join in, it's about being aware of our internal landscape and being aware of our interactions with our external landscape. So we have words to describe this, interoception and proprioception. So just it's about being aware of our internal landscape, interoception, and the interactions with our external landscape, proprioception. And I know that some people will interpret those words differently. That's okay. We can have nuance in this understanding. But if you just think about these questions, can I live in my body? Mm-hmm. And can I be in my body as I live in the world? And why is that important versus this this really um, amazing statement that habit lives at speed? Um, why is it important to slow down and be really present to your body and present to your, your surroundings, even in context of what's happening in the world right now, why is that an important thing? Oh my gosh. Now that's the biggest question you asked. I mean, (laughs) because I mean, we, we could talk about it across the importance for our planet. That's one of the contexts in which Tias was talking about it, that if we come out of habit and embody our actions, we are far less likely to do harm. Hmm to others or to our planet or, Mm -hmm. um, uh, to ourselves. I mean, really, truly, we are far less likely to do harm. That's one of those teachings we get right at the beginning before we get the yoga postures is that we are asked to be nonviolent. And so I guess that's one of the really important reasons to come into embodiment. I mean, the Mm -hmm. other important reason to come into embodiment is to, to feel pleasure. Like, the sound of a bird chirping. I mean, to experience life. Yeah. So is it is it what people are, are often, you know, talking about mindfulness in a way um, is that we are mindfully present to our bodies and to what's around us. And it seems like if we are in a time that is literally the world is out of balance. I mean, maybe it always is, but it is, you know, dramatically out of balance. Um it might be important and helpful for us to, you know, be present in our bodies and it, 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 we can't change what's happening in the world, but we can at least slow down and connect to ourselves and then more carefully connect to those around us. Yeah. And also, I mean, if we take it into the Buddhist teachings, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely right. And it just leads us into the Buddhist teachings, which is that suffering will happen. And the root of that suffering is our perception of permanence rather than the actual things in permanence. It's that we are seeking permanence where it isn't there. So embodiment helps us be fully present to the moment, just as it is. Mm, okay. okay. This is yoga at its very best, yes. but it's not like, it's probably not Instagram yoga, right? I mean, right. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's yoga at its very best and its right. deepest teachings. Yeah. And I encourage everyone who's listening to go see, like there's a lot of fun, valuable visual yoga. And it's fun to throw your body around and do cool stuff. Um, I love it too. Yeah. But also there's a place for embodiment practices within our yoga that helps us achieve that higher purpose. Okay. Okay. Yeah. To live in our body. And be fully present in the moment. And to be fully present in our world. 
Yeah. I think that that's really powerful. And personally, in my own movement practices and in my teaching, I have committed to fostering that. So we talked before about anxiety and fear, and I'm wondering, as we start to wrap up the interview, um, are there any other resources for for people um, that might be struggling with this, understandably? Yes. So earlier, and we just talked about um, the, some of the resources coming out of Buddhist meditation. Mm-hmm. And another resource that I could recommend and I believe that it might even be free streaming right now on Audible. Okay. Is the uh, Pema Chodron resource around meditation. And it's just an audiobook, and she's giving some lectures. And one of the things she talks about is a naming practice that um, we have to practice. It doesn't come naturally to us. So I don't want anyone to be like, oh man, I'm terrible at this. That's it. I give up. We have to practice it. And it really just involves naming what arises. Mm, I love and we that. have to name it compassionately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Not, damn it, there's that fear again. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, right. fear. Right. I'm terrible at this. That's right. it. I'm done. Right. Throw the cushion across. I'm so glad you said that because I think that's a very important distinction. Well, and she says it too. She okay, spends yeah. a lot of time talking about yeah. how to do this practice. Mm. And so the audiobook is called Pure Meditation. Okay. And in, I think it's chapter two. There's a whole section on how to do this naming practice. And so there are other written resources and stuff, but this is one I know people can get while they're at home. If they're at home or if they're commuting or they could even, you know, I know that some people are, are having a very changed and stressed life right now. So I don't want to assume everybody's at home. Right. So this naming practice can start with something really simple, like as you're sitting there or even as you're standing somewhere for just a moment in stillness, you might notice your tummy rumbling and you could say hunger or indigestion and you could just name it. You could start with something that was really physical. For a lot of us, that first entry into the practice is physical. Okay. Or we could just name where our brain has gone like, oh, bird chirping. Mm-hmm branch moving. So we could practice with even something as accessible as what we see or what we hear rather than trying to go to an internal landscape, which can be a little bit more elusive for some of us. Mm -hmm. And so then when we did get to that internal landscape, we might notice you might come to the breath, a topic you and I covered earlier. Like you might just say, Ooh, short inhalation or, Oh, tight tummy. I feel like I can't get a breath. And then you might get to a place in your practice, maybe not that first week or those first two weeks, but you might get to a place where you thought, hmm, fear, hmm, anxiety. And the idea is that you keep using that same compassion even when you get to the tough ones. The word we use sometimes is equanimity or witnessing or distance, you know, non-judgmental witnessing. Yeah. A turning toward. I love it. I love it. So that's another resource maybe some people could come to. And it's such an accessible resource. What I what I love about that is that, you know, you you are what we would call an expert in what you do every day. But most of us would never know to go to this book, Pure Meditation, to chapter two and listen to it audibly. That's that's such a shortcut. And I'll make sure to write that down just to kind of help people right now, right where they are. Um, And I think I know why it's important to name things. But before we get to our last question, why is that, you know, for someone at home who's like, well, that sounds good and it would feel good, but why would that help me? Can you speak to that person? So everybody, I think, knows. I don't think it's a stretch to say everybody. I don't say it that often, but I'll say it here. Mm -hmm. Knows shame and guilt. Yeah. And so shame and guilt can really arise in this time for sure. Let's take, for example, shouting at your children Mm -hmm. or a child. Yeah. And so you might get in a place, maybe the child has gone to his or her room or you've given yourself a timeout for a minute and you could name uh, shouting. It can help you really process things and it will take you through layers of processing because we're human and suffering happens. 
So it can take you, you could name the physical thing that happened, the shouting. You could name uh, irritation, fear. You could name something even deeper than that. It might take you to, um, you know, something around like your children's birth order or a much older feeling around this child, particularly if you have an adult child who's come home to quarantine. I've heard from a number of students who are in that experience um, where they have a grown child who is an adult living at home and, and need to name the layers of processing that's happening there. Might also take you to something like, hmm, alcohol, like you want to drink mm-hmm. or, um, hmm, numbing or, hmm, habit or, and so you can begin to name these different impulses that help you to see without guilt or shame. You might still feel it, but you're practicing not feeling it. You're practicing that witnessing instead the lack of judgment, seeing what happens. And then we get to make a different choice. Maybe not the next time, but maybe 10 times later after we fall into that hole a few more times. Mm-hmm. We're creating space. Is that part of it? Oh, we're, we're, yes, Monica. Okay, good. We're, we're making ourselves more present and creating space so that we can respond maybe differently rather than react next time we're confronted with a you know, tantruming child or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Whatever their age. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love that making space. I mean, that's really yoga's purpose, right? Is to make space. I love that, Monica. Thank you. Yeah. I have, I have learned so much. Um, and I just really, I think everyone listening will be trying to find a way to practice because it's just, I would say probably always, but especially right now, um, And I just want to ask our final question, which is a question I ask everyone. What is a person or event or um, thing that has helped shape you um, into the patty that we're talking to today that helped you become who you are today? I've listened to your podcast a lot and myself Uh also, we go... um, Oh, I love that question. Oh, I love that question. And then yeah. I get to this question. I'm like, I don't love this question. <laughs> this is the I question it. I don't yeah. like. Yeah, um, I totally get it. <laughs> I felt really uncomfortable with it. And I don't yeah. like to talk about myself. But I've also been kind of fortunate that I've had some really important and influential people in my life. And part of that is because that's the yoga learning structure. So I've just been really lucky to have gurus, teachers. Mm-hmm. And I would have a really hard time choosing them. But But then what that got me to is that I just wanted to say God. So I needed to think about that a little more. Yeah. Like how, because I believe that God manifests uh, its higher power in those teachers in my life. And so then I came to this very short period of time where I felt like I received God's grace all at once in a few little tiny moments. So I thought I might share that with you. Yes. I think that the moments of grace altered my life and I'm not sure where I'd be without them. So in 2002, I was really caught in unhealthy patterns and I was living with trauma and hurting myself. And then a couple of things happened. And all of these for me are like these little moments that happened within like an eight week period. And so the person who first, the person who was my life, he's my life partner now, James, a couple of years into our relationship, I was getting more and more unhealthy and then one night I went to really pick a fight and I can use that naming practice or that witnessing. Mm-hmm. And I can just see, I wanted to replicate comfortable patterns of behavior, but, uh, he refused to participate and it was so brave of him. And I really think that that wisdom kind of came not from him, but I remember thinking clearly, I will lose this grace in my life if I don't change. And then a couple of days later, I took a phone call from a stranger in my apartment and I was alone and I can still see it. And it was a researcher from Penn, which was where I was living and doing my PhD. And they were, she was conducting a wellness research call about people living with trauma. And it was totally random that she called me That is, and she gave me a quiz. Yeah. And it was right after this fight that didn't happen. And this researcher and her anonymity and her patience and her warmth allowed me to come to the realization that I was living with trauma and she recommended I get help. Wow. And then like two days later, I had this friend who was brave enough to say to me that I looked sick and he did not, he, I don't know what he had planned that day, but he walked me to a counseling center instead and put me through the door. And then I met my therapist like two days later. 
Oh my gosh. I have chills again, Patty. Oh my gosh. Wow. It was pretty great. It was like this little tiny period of time where like God's grace was just written in every interaction I was given. Oh, oh and without gosh. it, I would not be here. I would not be doing the work that I do. Mm. It's so beautiful and so powerful. And I think so encouraging for so many people to hear. Do you think that that those grace moments influence the way that you work with people today? Oh, I know that they do. Yeah. Yeah, I know that they do. Who doesn't need grace? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, I know that they do. Patty, thank you so much. Um, it's just such an honor to have this conversation with you. I know it'll be so helpful for so many people. Um, and, and my hope was just to, um, well, many hopes. Um, I had too many <laughs> hopes that I wanted to tackle, but one of them was to start to open the door to this, this healing practice that we all, that many people listening might just see from afar, or they might follow an Instagram account or something, but to really speak to someone who knows what they're talking about. And, um, I have learned so many truths that um, intersect in so many different ways. It's it's really mind-blowing. So thank you for your time and your wisdom. Oh, Monica, it was just a true pleasure. And I, I have such an appreciation for this podcast. Like I said, I've listened to almost every episode. And they have, like, I can think of one in particular that's really shifted something for me. And they're really valuable. And I'm so grateful for this this thing that you're putting out there. It's really, really a service. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. It's funny, as I was talking to Patty, I felt myself almost take a metaphorical exhale. There's something about the way that Patty teaches us about these different concepts around yoga that feels so accessible and it feels so kind. I hope that you, like me, will go to the show notes and link to these videos that Patty generously created for us. It is going to be such a helpful add-on in a way that all of us at home can practice some of the concepts that she generously taught us about. If you want to learn more about Patty and where to find her, all those links will also be in the show notes. For more information, please go to stillbecoming.net. Please subscribe and review Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. Please follow along on Instagram. You can find me at Monica DeCristina. Thank you for listening.